Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 26, The Cave. Harry could smell salt and hear rushing waves. A light, chilly breeze ruffled his hair as he looked out at moonlit sea and star-strewn sky. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper, did you know that toasted ravioli is actually not toasted at all? It is deep fried? No, I feel betrayed. I bought a toaster and everything. I know. Put it away and buy a deep fryer because... <laughs> Toasted ravioli is a classic food in St. Louis, Missouri. And we have a fabulous local group called Gateway to Hogwarts in St. Louis, run by Lydia Jackson. And if you want to join Lydia and her fabulous crew or any local group, go to harrypottersecrettext.com forward slash groups. It will make your life better. Vanessa, we're reading chapter 26 through the theme of persistence. And it's your turn to tell a story. It is. so. Too many years ago now, I was running a half marathon, and I was very keen on running it faster than I'd ever run any of my previous half marathons. And my brother was like, ooh, I'll fly out to Boston and run it with you. And my sister-in-law was like, I'll fly out to Boston too and super not run it with you. And I was like, okay, great. And she was like, but what I will do is make you a playlist. And I was like, thank you. That sounds great. And then in the months between when we made this decision and the race, there were just like a lot of questions and comments about this playlist from my amazing sister-in-law, Suzanne. Questions that seemed normal to me, like, tell me some of your favorite songs. And then it was questions that seemed a little weirder to me, like, what is your exact goal time for the half marathon? And then she was like, and also please keep me updated if it changes. And I was like, okay, this seems... A bit much, but I really appreciate all the effort you're putting in. So the half marathon day comes, and I'm so excited to run outside. It was a beautiful Boston day. My brother runs twice as fast as I do, so he takes off. And I hit play on this playlist that is apparently very important to my sister-in-law. And I was sort of like placating her. I was like, I have to at least pretend to listen to this thing for a little bit or I'll be in trouble. And little did I know that what she actually had were dozens of messages like this involved in the playlist. You can do it, Vanessa. It's Casper. I believe in you. Just imagine Jane Eyre was a marathon runner. You'd think she would stop. No way. She'd keep going. We love you. 
Okay, so it became clear to me that I, of course, was being a jerk, and my sister-in-law is amazing. But the other thing that happened is that I ran by far, not just my fastest half marathon time, but one of my fastest miles ever. And what occurred to me is that the reason that I did it was that I was just so happy. Like, I was listening to some of my favorite songs. My friends from all over the world, she'd gotten email addresses without asking me and had been sneaky and was asking friends of friends for other people's email addresses. And I was so moved by this, like, grand (laughs) swell of support for this silly thing I was doing that I did. I did better at the thing than I ever would have done. And I think that that is so important about persistence, that we think of persistence as something that is either built into us like a character trait or that we do alone. And in my experience, the key to persistence is having a support system in place. And I think that we see that so acutely in this chapter that neither of them would be able to accomplish this task alone, neither Dumbledore nor Harry. But we also just see it throughout the books, right, with the trio, that really no victory is a solo victory. We persist more and better together. Oh, I love that this, to use a religious word, like a little audio liturgy was the thing that made everyone real to you in that moment where kind of like Harry walking into the forest, right? Like the ones that you love are with you in that moment. That's just so beautiful. Now I want someone to do that for me because I'm running my first 10K in April and I'm terrified. So Suzanne, I don't know if you are like commissionable, but um, tell me your day rates. (laughs) (laughs) Casper, do you have a 30 second recap rate? It depends who's asking because when you ask me, it's always free. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Ooh. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so they land in this like seascape and then they have to swim for some reason. We'll get into that later. And they enter this cave and then they have to like blood to make Dumbledore magic, magic door opens. Um, Walk along, walk along. And he's feeling things magically cable, cable, boat, boat, out of water, into boat, across thing, into island, green, blowing, Um, starts drinking because no other way to touch it. So Dumbledore getting no, no, no. Harry making him drink, drink, drink and continues all the way down, grabs locket and uh, suddenly (gasps) inferi, bad, 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 fight, fight, fight with fire and return home <laughs> yes it was more an action movie like stage directions than a recap i loved it i also did not realize until you did this 30 second recap that harry is doing the magical equivalent of chug chug chug, chug. <laughs> <laughs> but when you were like drink drink i was like oh my god it's a frat you I, that was a real aha moment for me Um, All right, Vanessa, 30 seconds on the clock at your end. Are you ready? Yeah. Steady, go. Um, So Harry and Voldemort, nope, Harry and Dumbledore are like chatting the whole time. And Harry is like, the orphanage brought kids here. And Dumbledore is like, no, I think that Tom Riddle somehow magicked them Mm. up to this place. And also, you're not supposed to touch the water. And the reason that the inferi get like activated is because Dumbledore is so thirsty. And Harry is just trying to get him a cup of water and like help him. And that is what activates the inferi to come out. And they are attacking. And um, Dumbledore is very weak and he's almost dying. And Harry has to be the one to apparate them out. <gasps> that thing about the water is actually really important because Harry tries at the very beginning to like Accio the locket and we see this like <gasps> scary thing come out of the water so we know it's not good. So Vanessa, I want us to start with this strange 
magic kind of plot question, really, which is about why do they apparate into a place where they have to swim into the cave, which I know that they're able to be like dried off magically when they get there, but it seems like an unnecessary extra stage, which might weaken Dumbledore. And one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, with this theme of persistence, is Dumbledore apparating to this place because he wants to kind of get Harry ready to enter this threshold, right? Imagine if they apparated right outside where you have to give your blood, right? Like that's kind of a, you know, hey, welcome to the party. Please leave some blood offering, right? It's like a little much. And so if you start with some swimming, you know, some gentle breaststroke through the seawater, maybe it's like setting the tone for Harry to like prepare his mind after this very intense, stressful argument that they've been having. I guess I'm I'm looking for a way to read this with some sacredness. Yeah, the same thing struck me that I was like, I don't understand why they don't just sort of apparate to the font. That seems easier than this whole boat thing. But I think a couple of things. One, I think that Dumbledore doesn't know exactly what he's walking into and as competent as he is at guessing Voldemort's thought process— I think it is entirely possible that he doesn't want to apparate closer because maybe it'll activate something and that other people who show up wouldn't do the slow, painstaking thing of swimming and that Voldemort doesn't understand that people are willing to sacrifice themselves and get wet and get dirty in order to do something like this, that he throughout this is thinking this is what Voldemort would do. Oh, I love that so much because in what Voldemort thinks about, he would never think of a child entering this space. He would never think of someone being motivated by love. I love that. That Actually, this is about playing with Voldemort's design and it's about tricking and kind of intuiting what would be the more loving or the the more generous thing to do. Or the more muggle-ish thing to do. Voldemort would never not use magic. Yes. So, like, Voldemort would never degrade himself by swimming in his robes. What I think is interesting is that Dumbledore is so good at intuiting Voldemort's motives and limits, and that that speaks to the persistence of years of studying Voldemort. I mean, he can, like, mind meld with Voldemort. And we don't know if them apparating closer would have set something off. We don't know if he's right about all these things, but I think that his persistence with the order, with Snape, is all paying off in this moment to the point where he can intuit this is the boundary line of what Voldemort would do, and this is where it would stop. Yeah, he has that great line where he says, I taught Tom Riddle. I know his style. And one of the questions that came up for me was, You know, obviously Dumbledore and Harry have a close relationship, much closer than Dumbledore has with most students, but he's not really Harry's teacher in a classroom setting. And so as much as I love that moment of seeing this connection between Dumbledore's intelligence and and smarts about Voldemort, I did wonder, you know, will he ever have that same understanding of Harry's magic? And it's bittersweet for me to see that in part because we know that there's not much time left. You know, we're not going to have a further teacher-student relationship. And and this is their last shared experience, really, before they return and we all know what happens. Well, and, I mean, Dumbledore taught Tom Riddle for seven years, whereas Dumbledore has been headmaster. So it's a totally different relationship 
with Harry. He, he's been teaching Harry in this very intimate setting for the past year. But watching someone in a classroom for seven years, you get to know them better. And I think also at the end of your life, it becomes clear to you that to some extent, you've spent a lot of time maybe with the wrong people, right? Like, I've spent a lot of time at work with, you know, Joe Schmo, and like, why wasn't I home with my goldfish? Right. Yeah. Goldfish over Joe Schmo every time. But, you know, that classroom teacher relationship, I think, is so important because one of the things that Voldemort never understands is the capacity of young people. And so it's it's interesting also about how our kind of mischaracterizations or our judgments can persist, even though we have had, at this point, many, many, many chances to learn that lesson, right? Starting in book one, right? Start Actually starting with the attack on Harry as a baby. Voldemort thinks this is the easiest kill he's ever had. Could he be more wrong? No. But does that change his approach? No. And, and maybe that's because Voldemort doesn't have anyone around him to help him notice that, right? Like, I think that's one of the other beautiful things that came out of your story in terms of like, we need each other is like, we all have things that we don't notice. And it takes friends and family members and people who are brave enough to say like, hey, I see you. I see you making this choice again. And I, actually, I, I don't think it's best for the world. And I don't think it's best for you. I think he's missing that. And it means that he's weaker for it. I think that that's such an important point about persistence, in part because often we think that persistence just is a good thing, but people persist in, like, ignorant opinions, in bad strategies. You know, it's a cliche of, like, well, it's the way things have always been done. And it's like, well, that is a terrible reason to keep doing it that way. Right. I mean, this is what I thought about more and more as we've been getting into the, like, Horcrux story. Was there any point where Voldemort started his killing, right? From from victim one to victim two, from victim two to victim three, from three to four, et cetera. Was there any point where he said, oh God, what am I doing, right? Like the seventh time he cut his soul in half that he thought, I've gone this far, I can't turn back. I know that I have, obviously not with killing innocent people, but definitely with things where I'm like, this is not good for me or for the world, but like, I can't see a way out. So the only way is through. Isolation can drive that kind of persistence, I think. Well, let's actually spend some time dispelling that myth of the only way out is through, right? Mm. Because it is literally sometimes true. I remember once I was going cliff jumping, and so I was climbing this cliff, and I got about halfway up, and I was like, nope, this is a terrible idea. And somebody was like, it is more dangerous to climb back down than it is to finish climbing up and jump. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, the footholds are not made for climbing down. And so that was a time where it was like, I needed persistence. I was like, thank you for the logical data point. And like, now I need to do it. Yeah. But other than that, there's such a thing as sunk costs. And the thing that you do with sunk costs is cut them off. You don't keep throwing in good money after bad. And I think that we do that. We're, We're like, well, I already spent $10,000 trying to fix this car that doesn't work. What's another thousand? There's the good persistence, right, that gets you through the difficult moment and to the other side. But we have to constantly be evaluating and saying, am I persisting for persistence's sake? It has to be a tool that we use Hmm. when we need it and not a default modality. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in some ways, I was thinking about this a lot. I just recently finished watching this documentary called Cheer, kind of six, eight-part series or something, about a cheerleading team from a small college town in Texas. And these are young people. You're 17, 18, 19-year-olds. And you see in the trainings how many injuries, how much pain there is, how much like physical badness <laughs> is happening. Kind of like Harry offering himself to bleed for Dumbledore. Like he just steps forward to do that. These kids are basically stepping up to their coach and being like, I will do whatever you ask me to do. Even if I risk, you know, these very serious injuries. You have to trust what that persistence is in. And it's not always the case that we know. Sometimes you have to trust a teacher or an authority figure or a coach, or in Harry's case, Dumbledore, to be like, oh, you tell me I have to bleed in order to get through? Okay, I'll do it. And so that discernment of knowing what to persist in, that's really hard. And there's a lot at stake, I think. Yeah. And we all make mistakes in it all the time. I just wish that Voldemort, after his fourth killing, could have been like, oh, this was a bad plan. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm not sure that he ever had that remorseful thought, but we can always stop, right? We don't have to persist. I mean, sh- can we talk about the big moment of persistence in this chapter? Yeah, we've got to. Dumbledore makes Harry promise that Harry will force Dumbledore to persist drinking this poison. They have to drink this basin full of liquid in order to get to the Horcrux. And Dumbledore is like, I will drink it, but you have to absolutely promise that you'll make me. And then the horror of horrors happens, and Dumbledore, under the influence of this liquid, starts begging Harry to stop. And I think Harry does exactly the right thing, right, in persisting. It would have all been for naught. And it just broke me reading it this time. You know, it reminded me of all sorts of real-life circumstances where— Even just things like my nephew when he has to get shots, right? Like you're driving a baby to the doctor and like they don't understand it's for their own good. And of just like looking at something you love and hurting it. I mean, that's what got me so much. It's not just one time. I mean, it's like six times that he's pushing through this. I don't know how, whether he kind of compartmentalizes it or it's it's just... He knows the purpose is so strong. I also think it's like fear of Dumbledore. Like if I don't do it. Yeah, like a respectful fear of like when we come out on the other side of this, he's going to be like, what did you do? You promised. Yeah. And the thing that struck me is that it's he's not just like open your mouth, right? He's saying like this will help. This will make it go away. This will make you feel better. Like, And that lying keeps getting stronger. Part of me wants to say that I think we see something in Harry that's the Slytherin-ish in him. I don't think it's just courage. I think there's something else which is like, oh, I'm in control now. For me, there was a little hint of that, that he's seeing Dumbledore so weak. There's something powerful in Harry here, which is much more frightening than I had expected it to be on rereading this. So I didn't see it like that at all. I saw it as... The same way that Narcissa is with Draco, like this is a line that Harry has drawn and he's like, I promised Dumbledore, so I'm going to do it. And then you do whatever you have to do to get it done, Mm -hmm. right? And Narcissa is like, I'm not going to let anyone hurt Draco. I will do whatever I have to do. I mean, the place that my mind went 
was a, a pediatric chemotherapy lounge, right? Yeah. Of like a parent saying to a child, but this will make you feel better in the long run. And that was how I experienced it. And if you have to lie to them to get them to do it this time so that they can survive, then you're going to lie to them. And it's like, if this breaks your trust in me, I don't care. I'm going to get you out alive. So I saw it as Harry having drawn a line. And also, not in a sunk cost way, right? Like, he's already suffered this much. I'm not going to let it be for nothing. We're not stopping now. But the thing that Harry doesn't know that we do on rereading it is that when it's done, Dumbledore suddenly returns, right? He's like, I need water. Because Harry doesn't know if he's just going to end up, I mean, he thinks he's died at one point. The stakes are so high. I mean, I think it's more that I have both admiration and fear of Harry because I don't know if I could keep going in the way that he does when it's such an unsure outcome. Yeah. And I guess all of this is making me think about Harry is really a worthy successor to Dumbledore. I know that he's not necessarily going to become headmaster of Hogwarts, but certainly in the sense of lineage and the mission, Harry is taking that on his shoulders. And I think about the ways in which Dumbledore has solo persisted in hunting these Horcruxes, figuring out how to take down Voldemort, not just once, but twice. Like Harry's capacity really to make the ultimate sacrifice. Here he's sacrificing someone else who he loves. And we know that he is going to be ready to sacrifice himself. I feel like the embryo of that is in this moment. That's brilliant. Because the other thing is, is that we're so judgmental of Dumbledore being willing to sacrifice Harry. But Harry, we see in this moment, is willing to sacrifice Dumbledore. And so there's a real reciprocity in this moment of Dumbledore is entwining their fates entirely, right? Because I was thinking about your last point that Harry thinks that maybe Dumbledore is dead. And like, what would the story be that Harry would tell himself if Dumbledore did die? Would it be Dumbledore told me to? Would it be he's a victim of Voldemort? Or would it be I killed Dumbledore? And it would probably be some combination of all three. But that's the same combination that Dumbledore has to live with of like, I may be killing Harry, but Voldemort is killing Harry, but he is willing to die himself. Yeah, they're becoming the same Mm -hmm. in an important way. And I think what's striking in this whole chapter, we see Dumbledore do magic that we have not experienced before, right? It's this very tactile magic where he's touching things and He's literally tracing what magic has been here before in ways that I just find fascinating. And we're about to lose all of that, right? That power, that skill, that intuition is going to be gone in the most important battle throughout the whole seven books. And yet, if in this chapter we see that Harry is Dumbledore's equal in his persistence, I think there's hope in that new wizards will rise, new witches in Hermione will rise, who will have that technical excellence. But it's Harry's character and his generosity of spirit that ultimately is matched in Dumbledore and what will make them victorious in the end. Yeah. I mean, I'm even thinking more and more, I don't know why it never, I never saw it before, but right, it is said about Voldemort and Dumbledore that Dumbledore is the only one he ever feared. And it's like, well, now the only one he really fears is Harry. They are so connected, right, that in book five, Dumbledore is afraid to make eye contact with him. And maybe it is that very connection that gives Harry the strength to persist. On some level, he must be like, I wouldn't want him to stop. 
If we were flipped, I would be so pissed if he had me stop drinking. But we know that to be true. I mean, this is what I find so powerful about people who in their spiritual lives or religious life have a very strong sense of ancestry. And you hear, you know, certainly activists in groups like Black Lives Matter or the civil rights struggle, many people expressing, you know, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams, right? This sense that this is not just about what I do and, and my life and what I achieve. Like, I am responsible to a legacy, to a history of people who have overcome so much more than I will ever experience. And from that horror, from that history, to draw strength to do the things that I have to do today, it just totally reshifts our focus of like, oh, this is a really, you know, awful situation that we're in to be like, no, people who I physically come from have done this and so much more. And I think that's what Harry is getting in this moment. It's like, there's some sort of transference of legitimacy and of of capacity in this demonstration of persistence that even though Dumbledore will die in a few chapters time, he's kind of resurrected in Harry. And that's so beautifully enacted in Harry being the one to transport them home. Yeah. Yeah. Dumbledore brings them there and Harry brings them home. I also just think that's where the line is, right? With the the parent who's willing to poison their child with chemotherapy. If you have clarity of, I am hurting you now, but in 10 years, mm-hmm. you would hate me for not doing this. And I think maybe the other question that we have to ask ourselves in these moments is what would I want done to me? That's right. Right? And it's like, Mm. well, if I were a child, I would want my parent to do everything that they could to keep me alive. And and the contrast for that is so perfectly made with the inferi because they persist. They they are just coming at you, whatever spells, right, except for fire. And it's because it's that kind of unasking, brainless persistence, which you've just exactly illustrated the opposite of. So that's that's kind of a nice physical version of that. Yeah, they are persistence without thought rather than persistence with moments of reflection. Exactly. Which in the moments of reflection are where the courage come, right? Uh-huh. Because you have to face the the difficult challenges and the hard choices. And you've already you've already seen how bad it is. You're like, I'm gonna make them drink more, and I've already seen him weep. I know what's coming now, and I'm gonna do it again. Doing something bold without knowing the repercussions can be stupid, but like doing something bold, knowing the repercussions is persistence and courage. Right. So one question that I I hardly dare ask, having had this like, I don't know, like emotional conversation is the Horcrux isn't here. And Dumbledore is so sure it is, right? That's not even ever a question. Like, what do we do with that? I mean, I'm thinking of, I recently talked to our wonderful friend and mentor, Matt Potts, about Easter. And he was telling me that although in the Christian tradition, there's many further stories that come after the first written gospel, the gospel of Mark, the earliest version that we have of the gospel of Mark ends with basically an empty tomb and this line that they were afraid or they were terrified. So we never really see evidence of a resurrection. We only have a sign of the body that's gone. And it made me think so much of this moment that like right now we think that there's something in the tomb, <laughs> but it's going to be empty. And that right after we lose Dumbledore, we kind of discover that this was all for nothing. I mean, the metaphor would be if I can stay in this really sad place, you know, if the chemotherapy doesn't work. 
Is it still worth it? Right. And then you have to tell yourself a story. I made my child suffer and it didn't even work. And to me, it's but you wouldn't have been able to live with yourself if you hadn't tried. Even though it's, quote unquote, all for naught in this moment, there was no other option. It's kind of like the cliff face, right? Like, are you just going to stay here? No. Right. Build a house. (laughs) Just (laughs) hang up a hammock. (laughs) Invite people over for tea. Yeah. And tell all of them they have to jump off to leave. But I'm cozy right here. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, and I think, you know, you and I both spend a lot of time writing. And there's that moment where you just look at a thousand words that you've written. You just have to command a delete, uh, right? It's heartbreaking. At least the story I tell myself, and it might not be true, is that it wasn't all for naught. That, like, it helped me get to the better thought. To me, there's just, like, no point regretting those things because you there was no way for you to know. So I don't think it is all for naught. And, you know, strategically, it's not, right? Strategically, they figure out who R.A.B. is, which gets them into the right horcrux, and they find the right locket. True. <sighs> it was a tough chapter. It's not easy reading. It's not. No. The people on the airplane next to me— we're like, does she, has she never read Harry Potter before? Yeah, is this, Why does is she, she know crying? what's coming? <laughs> this poor old woman. Uh, uh, I would say distinguished woman. <laughs> so, Cass we are transitioning to a new sacred reading practice. Yes. Flora Legia, which, as you know, of course, is a Christian monastic practice in which we each pick a sparklet, something that sparkled to us Mm. from the text, and we put the quotes in conversation with one another, creating a new sacred text that has never been created before. What is your sparklet? I chose, I am not worried, I am with you. Oh, that's lovely. I chose your blood is worth more than mine. (laughs) Well, what a perfect illustration of our two approaches. (laughs) Casper, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about the sentence, where it comes from in the text and why it spoke to you? Well, it's such a beautiful piece of the text. I think it comes right at the end. They've taken the locket. They're on their way home. And Harry is really aware of Dumbledore's weakness. I mean, he's physically carrying him and he's really, he's kind of just checking in with Dumbledore and Dumbledore very succinctly says, I am not worried, I'm with you. And it's really the first time I think, you know, we've seen Dumbledore admire Harry. We've seen Dumbledore praise Harry, encourage Harry, all sorts of things. But this is the first time that Dumbledore has placed simple trust and I don't know, a really beautiful moment. I think about the ways in which our relationships change with a parent, for example. Of course, you're always going to be the child, but at some point you might also become the caregiver or the caretaker. And I think that's what's happening in this moment for me. How about yours, Vanessa? That's a powerful sentence. Yeah, it's when Dumbledore and Harry are arriving at sort of this like first protection at the cave and they have to give some of their blood in order to get in. And Harry's first instinct is like, oh, I'll give some blood. And Dumbledore is like, well, that's very cute, but your blood is worth more than mine. And I picked it because I think it's something that I want to spend my whole life fighting against, that anybody's blood is worth more than anybody else's. 
We all are picking that certain blood is worth more than others all the time. And yet I'm compelled by Dumbledore because Dumbledore is older and um, has lived a full life, whereas Harry has his whole life in front of him. Yeah, that's why it stood out to me. I both agreed with it and didn't agree with it. So now let's put these two sentences in conversation with each other. So I am not worried. I am with you. Your blood is worth more than mine. I mean, I guess on first reading, it's coherent. It's the same speaker. It's Dumbledore speaking to Harry. And he's saying essentially like, you are going to look after me or you are the stronger or the more valuable, right? Like it's placing himself in service of, or at least in in relationship to Harry in a way that to make himself smaller and Harry bigger. The The thing that I read it as, I'm not worried I'm with you, sort of, and your blood is worth more than mine in a cynical way, right, <laughs> is like, I mean, it's the way I felt living at Harvard a lot of the time. I was like, well, I'm not going to starve. I live with Harvard freshmen and their blood is worth a lot. So they're going to airlift stuff in if we need it, right? Like, there was this, like, closeness to people who the powers wow. that be value. And so I felt sort of safe in that umbrella of, like, I'm adjacent to the people who the world values. But then there's another way to read it of, like, I'm not worried I'm with you. Then it's like, but your blood is worth more than mine, so maybe I should be worried. Like, <laughs> I'm the expendable one. Yeah. Okay, should we flip the two quotes the other way? Yeah, let's see what we find. Your blood is worth more than mine. I am not worried. I am with you. This time I heard it as a conversation rather than one voice. I heard it as two. I guess I, I'm hearing one person say, like, your blood is worth more than mine, right? You're better than me. You're, you're more valuable. And then in the response, I heard a negation of that. Basically, in I'm not worried, I'm with you, I heard none of us has to give our blood, right? We're together. Like, I'm not going to allow that to happen to any of us. So I'm taking it out of the actual context of getting through this particular magical door. But I- I'm hearing solidarity and I'm hearing, you know, we, w- we will not let ourselves be divided, even though outside people might look at us in terms of like one of us has a higher status than the other. And even you're the one who brings this to the table and I'm mm. the one who brings this to the table. Like if it was a conversation between all of them, it's like, well, your blood is worth more. And it's like, well, I'm not worried because I'm with you that there's a reciprocity to it. Well, and that reveals so much the meaning of this whole chapter, which is that like Voldemort cannot imagine two people in this space. He has designed his whole magical protection for a single wizard or witch. And I mean, that's what this floor ledger is getting me to is like, because I'm with you, neither of us has to be worried. That feels so true to me about everything, right? That like, We're driving to New York tonight, and my mom was like, wait, you're driving at night? And I was like, yeah, me and Ariana. And she was like, oh, Ariana will be there, right? It's like as soon as there's, like, another person there who you love and trust, something that could feel scary is immediately just not as scary. And it's not just because they bring something that I don't have. It's because by being with them, something in me comes out that I couldn't have on my own. It's all of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for that beautiful Florilegia, Casper. I love Florilegia. Thanks for choosing that. This week's voicemail is from Catherine. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. 
I'm Catherine from North Carolina, and I just wanted to call in because your episode on healing meant so much to me, especially the part where Vanessa mentioned that often a student struggling is a sign that something's wrong. I went to school for engineering, which has a strong culture of blaming students for any academic issues. Professors often were seemingly incapable of considering their pedagogy as a possible problem, instead blaming students even if half the class failed. For me, things got even worse when I developed a chronic illness in college. Both before and after my diagnosis, almost everyone around me blamed my struggles in school on me being lazy or not cut out for my major. Even my parents accused me of not trying hard enough. After getting accommodations for my illness, I was able to graduate with my degree, but I still struggle with thinking I'm lazy or stupid whenever I can't do something due to my health. I wanted to offer a blessing for everyone struggling at work or school due to outside factors that have nothing to do with their work ethic or competence. I especially see this in the books with Neville, since many of his difficulties with school are because he has his dad's wand and doesn't get his own until book six. Thank you so much for making this podcast. Catherine, you just like honed in on one of my pet peeves when leaders of any capacity are like, all of you are failing, shame on you, rather than being like, ooh, all of you are failing, I must be doing something wrong. It is just absolutely like mind boggling to me that a teacher could look at half of students who fail and think that the problem is with the students. And it just seems to me like those people are not very good at logic and therefore should not be building my bridges. <laughs> right? And honestly, I think so many of us will recognize that feeling being kind of discounted or not just not understood and dismissed. I mean, I've learned so much from you, Vanessa, from your health journey of navigating systems that we are taught to respect, right? Like a doctor will know, a lawyer will know, the police will know. And it's like, you know what? Actually, no. There's still a bunch of stuff out there which is new. And if you're one of those people who are in a situation that the system has not been designed for, it can be so frustrating and invalidating. And so I hope we listen to your experience, Catherine, and we learn from it. Thank you. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from this chapter. And I'm going to be a little cheeky and choose two people. We don't actually meet them properly in this chapter, but we're reminded of them. When Tom Riddle was young, he takes two children, not just by force, but by magical force. They're younger than him. They're also orphans. They're in this orphanage with him. And from all that we can understand, he abuses them in this cave. It's one of the reasons why this cave holds such like horrible magic energy. And we're never really told what happens to these two children. And if we can believe the text at face value, they live, they grow up. And I, I just want to bless anyone who experience some form of abuse as a child and who is living as best they can now with that truth of what happened to them and often that it's not seen it's not recognized so i'm just thinking of those two children in this chapter yeah how about you vanessa well our blessings really go well together there there are no women in this chapter but there were no women at a lot of front lines for a really long time and there's still women fighting and as part of these fights. And so while in this cave, I was reminded of Mrs. Cole, Tom's old teacher at the orphanage, and that she meant to take the kids on this nice outing and instead got back to traumatized children and, you know, probably didn't have like social work training 
on how to best care for them in this moment and, you know, in living with Tom, who she didn't trust, and that there are invisible women who are a part of every battlefield. And the one that was conjured for me in this moment was Mrs. Cole and Ginny and Molly and Lily. Sorry, I'm done. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and join our Facebook common room for in-depth conversations about each episode. Or come and join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. We have exclusive for now Ginny Weasley, patron saint of survivors, pins up on Patreon, and they are awesome. You can also leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 27, The Lightning Struck Tower, through the theme of earnestness. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nedelman. Our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. Thanks to Catherine for this week's voicemail, Suzanne Zoltan for the fabulous playlist, my lovely husband Sean for setting up my studio today, Julia Agi, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. Stay with us as we enter these terribly sad chapters, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Can I tell you when I cried recently thinking about the two of you? I just rewatched Parks and Recreation, and uh-huh. at the very end, Leslie is like governor of Indiana, and she's giving a commencement address. And she goes, now, go find your team and get to work. And I was like, I did that. (laughs) I did that. I found my team and got to work. We got to work. I'm living such a beautiful life. (laughs) True story.